This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Talking about the fallout from the G7, uh, it continues. I thought, you know, really, to be honest, once uh, Trump started with his uh, chat in Singapore with Kim Jong-un, that this would be off uh, the news cycle and and we'd be moving on to bigger and better things. But, of course, when Donald Trump insists on doubling down on something and relaunching it, then uh, here we go again. Uh, and, of course, the latest out of uh, Donald Trump is uh, whatever he and, uh, I guess, Justin Trudeau discussed that wasn't honoured uh, behind closed doors. Uh, now Trump says that's going to cost a lot of money for the people of Canada. <laughs> You can't do that. You can't do that. What is it that he did other than say we won't be pushed around? And it's something he has certainly said before. Uh, let's bring in Alyssa Freeman, public relations consultant. Uh, Alyssa Freeman PR. She is with us now. Thank you for taking the time, Alyssa. We always appreciate this. Thank you for having me on, Scott. Are we making too much out of this? Or is there something that happened behind closed doors that we're not aware of here? You know, I don't think that we are making too much out of it, and I find the whole situation a little bit worrisome. You know, at first I thought this was just posturing by Trump before he went to um, Korea, and I mean to talk with the North Koreans in Singapore. And I felt that this was just him saying, well, you may not, you may say that we won't be pushed around, and he felt that that might have put him in a bad position entering into these talks, thinking that, you know, Kim Jong-un would think he was a pushover. So I thought it was a bit of posturing there, and then I thought it would blow over. And then he had his lieutenants go on TV and double down, one of which is in the hospital now, Larry Kudlow, with a heart attack. See what happens? There's your See karma. There's your karma right Canada. there, Alyssa. There you go. Anyway. And the fallout, the organic fallout of this, I find to be very interesting. The hashtag Thanks Canada has been trending for two days now, yeah. with Americans spontaneously thanking us for everything from letting our planes land during 9-11 to maple syrup and Joni Mitchell. So there's that. Um, There has been some interesting charts come out from the U.S. from um, economic experts showing that Canada actually charges half of the amount of tariffs that the other countries do that the U.S. does business with. So, you know, I think that there's a number of advisors trying to tell him this might not be the way to go. And of of all places that Canada is not the one to pick a battle with, but it's uh, it's worrisome for sure. Uh, that being said, and you brought up the, this a second ago, he, despite what we think of him here or his politics or what have you, he is one of the, or if not the most popular leader in the world right now. So as you mentioned, not only within his own country, but from around the world, is, is this kind of like, picking a fight with Santa Claus? Well, it is. I don't know if I would um, call him the most popular leader. I would call him the most infamously popular leader uh, in the world. Mm. And I'll tell you something, Scott. If this whole thing with North Korea does come to pass, right now they're just talking about having more talks. Like, honestly, I think that's just what this is all about. But if he actually locks this down over the next month or during the next year, he will consider himself unstoppable and able to do anything. Yeah. You know, he will say, if I can bring the North Koreans to their knees or if I can bring the North Koreans to a detente, then I can do anything. And that will really please his base, quite honestly. And, you know, you might see another four years come election time. So um, where does this go? How does Prime Minister Trudeau handle this? With kid gloves right now, I mean, you saw what happened in the briefing press conference. 
and the fallout from that. And I think that, you know, most of their time right now, if not all of their time, 24-7, is, is around dealing with this. So there's meeting after meeting and calls that everybody has into their own contacts into Washington. It's, you know, you it's very popular for Canadian prime ministers to say that they're not going to necessarily play ball with the Americans. I remember, I think, Kretchen even was yeah. overheard yeah. through a live mic saying that on a on the panel that he was speaking about uh, speaking on. So, you know, this is this whole thing on the one hand is playing very favorably for Trudeau in front of his audience, which is us, the Canadians and voters. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, how they handle it from here, I think, is just sort of sit tight and don't proactively go out with any messaging until you know the true lay of the land. Uh, we all assumed that Justin Trudeau had some sort of special relationship with uh, Donald Trump. Well, others were sort of fighting. He seemed to embrace him and uh, not get sucked into the war of words, this sort of thing. We even heard rumors that other leaders would ask Trudeau for advice on how to approach Trump. Is is that different now? Is 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 Is, is Trudeau just like everybody else who gets in the crosshairs? Oh, absolutely. You know, one day you're Trump's best friend, and the next day you're in the doghouse. And you'll notice that even Trump's demeanor in meeting world leaders is a little bit different now. Before, there was that sort of -of tug-of-war handshake, um, which maybe he's decided not to do on his own, or maybe his advisor said, you know what, just shake the guy's hand and let's not have it become part of the narrative or become part of the spectacle. So he certainly wasn't doing that this time with Trudeau, and he also didn't do it with Kim Jong-un either. Um, it's, this is a really tricky one, Scott, and, and, and I have to say that how we handle this going forward, you know, you never know where you're going to end up. Unless you agree with Trump and don't upset him, then everything is fine. Yeah. But as soon as you upset him, it's almost like, you know, dealing with, with a child. And yeah, yeah. It was, he stamps his feet and says, okay, well, now I'm going to retaliate. Well, again, I keep coming back to this quote. That's, that's going to cost a lot of money for the people of Canada. You can't do that. You can't do that. You can't do what? Say you that can't you're not make gonna me be... look like a fool. You can't make me look like I'm not strong. You can't. Did anybody think that Trudeau made him look like a fool? All he said no, was, "We're not going to be pushed around." Well, what what the um, what the Canadian what the government is saying in defense of Trudeau is saying that you know what they have, what Trudeau said is nothing different than was said in the past week. Mm-hmm. So there's no new narrative here. But I think that you know what the G7 was back to back with the talks in Singapore. And I think that Trump was all in on the talks in, in Singapore, but not at all in on, um, you know, the talks in the G7. I think he had a very, very thin layer of patience. So as soon as things uh, did not go his way, then that's when all hell broke loose. So the doubling down afterwards, is that just inflated after the success of the North Korean summit, the Singapore summit? Yes, because now he's at a position of power, and there isn't a reporter. I was watching morning TV, and there isn't a reporter there isn't saying, you know, these are stunning developments. Did you ever think that you would have seen the President of the United States standing beside the leader of North Korea with both flags uh, next to one another? You know, the one thing that worries me is, are we in here for a, uh, a new world order? 
You know, it seems mm. that Trump goes to the G7 and says, why isn't Russia here? Yeah. And then he flies over to Singapore and is making friends with the North Koreans. Who does he really want to be his allies? Yeah, no, yeah. It's, that, it's, yeah. that, it, it's, Scott, yeah. is, you know, yeah. I'm sure people are thinking it, but I haven't heard any, you know, of the journalists say that. But I think that's the narrative that's really going to come out of this after they finish reporting on this summit. All right. So talk about the summit itself, your thoughts. You talked about the handshake, the body language. I noticed mostly the size of their hands because they were both small. No, I'm just kidding. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you know, Saturday Night Live is going to jump on that. But um, talk about the body language and, and what you saw. Well, first of all, let's remember that this is how Trump sort of bases how a meeting is going to go. And he has much said so. He says, well, how do you know in the first minute that this is going to be fine? I know it by touch. I know by somebody's demeanor. I know by looking in their eyes. Um, You know, I think he's looking for weaknesses. I'm not thinking he's looking for, you know, is this going to go well or not? And I I don't know if, you know, Kim Jong-un is still, you know, a young guy. And what is, you know, aside from what is staff is telling him what does he you know really know and what is his experience with foreign affairs i think that this was just a very top line talk about talking some more and this was more about the photo op than absolutely anything else uh that being said that is a huge step well it is a huge step because no sitting president has ever done it before and having that one photo, which I guarantee you, listen, when, you know, I, I do public relations and I've done it for a number of different clients. And, you know, whenever you're dealing with government, it's all about what is the photo op going to look like? And there's a lot of machinations as to making sure that everything is controlled as in, uh, with respect to the camera's view. So it's the way the flags are lined up. It's the way that they stand. It's where they stand. It's how they stand. It's what they want them doing. So having that one photo op, which is now on the topic on everybody's lips, was clearly very important. It was clearly executed perfectly. And right now, that's all they need until the next meeting. Uh, is it time for Trudeau to set up another boxing ring? Gee, wouldn't that be interesting? <laughs> yeah, but who would be his opponent? I can think of one. What about the size difference in uh, Kim Jong-un and Trump? How does he play that to his advantage? Because Trump, I imagine, if you met him, would be an intimidating guy to meet. Oh, I think that, you know, for somebody who is so, uh, who places so much emphasis on body language, that uh, that plays huge. And, you know, he would use his size and stature and he would... He would absolutely make the most of it when he could. So, you know, in a face-to-face meeting, and especially with the eyes of the world on them, you know, Trump wants to look his best, and he also wants to look powerful. So that's absolutely very important to him. What about, um, as we heard more of a breakdown and what actually was being said, they talked about forgetting the past. It's a new start. Can you do that? Can you move forward like this? Or do you have to uh, have some sort of forgetfulness or forgiveness to move forward? How do they deal with uh, well, I don't know what veterans would think who fought in the Korean Exactly. War. I mean, there's you know, a lot of history there. People aren't there. going to forget so easily. And, you know, people don't change, Scott. You ever met somebody and you think, oh, maybe that person has changed. And then you become friends again and something happens and you think, okay, well, nothing else is new. What else is new? It's the same old, same old behavior. 
So I don't know how we're just going to drop everything and trust the North North Koreans. You know, what are they going to do with all their their military might? What that's not going to go away. So I, I think that once people get over this, that oh everybody's talking and everybody's friendly, I think the trust issue is going to rear its head very very soon. Uh, does does when Trudeau was talking about what happened at the G seven, how much of uh, North Korea factors into that? Does he does he does he justify what was said or what happens with the North Korean visit with the posturing? Yeah, I don't think there's going to be any more talk about it. I think that right now they're they're just going to hold tight, and there's going to be no more talk about it. Um, you know, I know that they were trying to come to consensus statements at the G7, and I know that they left their staff members to come to consensus statements. And I, uh, I, I think that, you know, some of that is, is, is still in play. I, I think that Trudeau is just going to lie low at this point. How do you think he feels provoked. about it? How do you think the prime minister feels about this? On the one hand, I think he feels that he's proud that he's standing up for Canadians and our image. And on the other hand, I think he's scared out of his mind as to what will happen. And the person who's really nervous or who's really working double time with all her con- contacts, and thank goodness she's there, is Christopher Freeland. So I'm glad she's on our side. That's all I can say. Uh, he also dropped the bomb about the auto sector. Again, it seems whenever this guy gets uh, in an argument with somebody or someone gets in their crosshairs, like he just amps up. He just loads it up. And, and again, now everybody's hysterical thinking, oh, my goodness, he's going to tamper with the lucrative auto industry. Like, he really does ramp it up. Well, you have to remember that, you know, once you start talking about the auto industry with Canada, it also is going to affect all the other deals, the trade deals that he has all over the world. So it's just not Canadians. It's the Japanese. It's the Germans. It's, you know, the Scandinavians. It's everybody who has a manufacturer of, of automobiles. So the whole world is is looking at this and seeing how this is all going to play out because they know it's about about to affect them. And then you heard some of that coming out of the G7 when some of the other leaders were talking or some of the other representatives were talking. And in fact, I still remember one fellow saying, he was an attache from somebody, that said it's easier negotiating with the Russians. Yeah, I heard that. <laughs> Um, all right, now we're flip-flopping back to the summit. Uh, now that this big meeting is over, what happens now? Is this out of the news forever? Because, again, who's going to be interested in the low-level meetings or the other low-level meetings that go on to try to, 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 to bring some, some of this to fruition? What, what happens next? Like, this is a long game, so there can't be these quick successes every news cycle. Well, you have to remember that we are now, all of us, are participating in Trump's reality show. Okay, so whatever he's putting on the agenda is what we're going to talk about. So, you know, when there's only so much you can say about the North Koreans and then he'll put something else in the agenda. But whatever is on the agenda, Scott, will make him look powerful and will make him look right and will absolutely appeal to his base. So that's exactly what we can expect. It might be more NAFTA. It might be more Canada. It might be more um, Mexico. You never know. But, you know, everybody's coming up with narratives that present a a winning opportunity for the U.S. and for Trump, more importantly. How does he top this? Well, I I don't even want to say it. If I say it, it might come true. But, you know, as he's negotiating with um, any and every other country, that's how he'll top this. 
So he will just keep himself, you know, at the top of the pile. Whatever he says goes. And I think woe be unto anybody who has to deal with Trump and his ego right now. Hmm. Is he doing good for the United States? Well, if you talk to his base, he is. But if you talk to everybody who's put a thanks candidate tweet out, he's not. <laughs> you know. Um, but 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 honestly, I think that um, Republicans will. Uh, the Republicans right now are 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 supporting him. Nobody is saying boo. Um, nobody is going to come up against him. I mean, there are policy people who are worried about what's going on with trade. And, and who knows? You know what, Scott? It's almost, too, it's almost impossible to predict what is, um, what's going to happen because he can flip-flop either way. Yeah. All right. It's going to be fascinating. Alyssa Freeman's been with us, public relations consultant, Alyssa Freeman PR. Alyssa, as always, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. It's been quite a week when you think of what's been happening worldwide uh, with Kim Jong-un and then, of course, the G7 summit uh, in which Trudeau attacks uh, Justin Trudeau for things that he said. And from what I understand, it's because of the line, you know, we don't want to be pushed around. Apparently, and Trudeau has said that several times, but apparently that rubbed Trump the wrong way. And then, of course, let's not forget, before all of that, was a fascinating Ontario election. Do you remember that? Do you remember going to the polls and casting a ballot? It seems like it's so far away. We're going to talk about that coming up a little later on. All right, uh, let's move on to all of this. Uh, Feel free to jump into the fray. We would love to have you. uh, And, of course, uh, don't forget to share your thoughts with us. All right, anything connected to the Internet can be hacked. And that could be uh, that could have eventual safety concerns for airlines, including the hijacking and controlling of an airplane. To talk more about all of this, Daniel Tobak is with us, CEO, Cytelligence Incorporated, an expert on cybersecurity, and is with us now. Daniel, thanks so much for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. Thanks for having me on. This is a very scary thought. Uh, how close to we uh, how close to we are this considering what we've seen as far as industrial hacking absolutely so i mean we're we're still uh, a bit of ways uh, of of getting uh, airplanes hijacked electronically uh, not because it cannot be done actually it can be done it's because we're not installing that particular technology yet in our airplanes thank god uh, we're still going through some uh, pretty severe Q&A uh, before actually implementing it to go live. One of the big issues is just like uh, we have issue with the IoT devices, Internet of Things, basically the devices that are connected to the Internet, is that the moment you have a connection to a device, it can be a little teddy bear, it can be an alarm clock, it can be a plane uh, or a car. Once it's connected to the Internet, you don't necessarily control 100% of the access of what somebody can do if they compromise the system. That's where all of these worries are coming from. But what you're saying right now is that technology or the technology that controls an airplane isn't that advanced yet where it can be controlled remotely. So over and above the hacking, the planes just can't be controlled that way? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, not yet. There's uh, Over the next uh, 36 months, 
there's going to be implementation of new technology into airplanes, irrelevant of the brand, just, you know, so this is across the board. It's basically part of the program that started about eight years ago of bringing the planes to the next, uh, to the next uh, generation. Uh, and they will have, I mean, uh, all the sensors and everything that you're able to do connected to an Internet. While it's a private Internet, uh, it's not the public Internet. It can still be breached by somebody who knows how to manipulate that. So uh, that will be completely taking the control out of the pilot's hands. What's the difference between that and, say, an autopilot like we would have now? They say that literally the pilot can sit there and let the whole thing land and take off itself anyway. Yeah, absolutely. So today the, it, it all comes down to the way the sensors are connected from the airplane to the control center. So today a pilot uh, can literally switch on the autopilot and sit back but where we're, there are always a plan B is that actually the pilot can make a human decision and turn it off physically and actually take control of the plane, right? Um, unfortunately, with some of the next generations, if security is not going to be embedded correctly, somebody can override the actual physical part of the pilot. Uh, of course, all the manufacturers are trying to stay away from it. There's always got to be a plan B where there's a human intervention involved. But with the technologies that are being added, there's still things that could be manipulated remotely. What's the advantage to having the airliner completely self-sufficient that way? What's the, what's the advantage to having a system that the pilot can't override? And I guess you could say, well, if something happened to the pilot, then remotely the plane could be landed uh, without a pilot. Uh, or, or do we even need pilots in the future? I mean, what is the advantage to even going this far? You know, the big advantage that the, that the industry is really going for is when they do studies of, uh, of crashes and problems with airplanes, a lot of it is actually pointing to human error versus mechanical error. Right. So I think the big push is, is to avoid less human error and having the ability to, to fix things on the fly uh, or, or sense additional sensors and connections because today for example even with some of our advanced airplanes uh, commercial airplanes there are sensors and monitors and so on but not everything is actually communicating back to call it head office or the control center mm -hmm. they want to take it to the next level where the control center can actually see you know issues with the airplane and so on Will there be a big debate on this uh, and, and, and how much control an external um, um, source can have over an, over an airplane? I mean, once this technology is there, well, I guess it's, it's in the process of being installed, yeah. um, where, where's the safeguards for that? You know, like many things, Scott, you know, everything starts with a very good idea for efficiency and safety. Uh, I, I really hope that there will be some major debate back and forth uh, before the decision of actually implementing this for commercial use. Uh, because, uh, you know, like I always say, somebody has to provide a guarantee that the system cannot be compromised. Um, so we will be looking, of course, for the, for the manufacturers to provide a guarantee, government bodies that uh, audit and have oversight over this, they must provide guarantees that this simply cannot get hijacked and they will put the implementation in place to secure it. 
How can you guarantee those sorts of things when it seems, uh, you know, every couple of months or weeks or so we hear of a new hack and, and how, you know, it, it's invaded a large company or financial institution or even government? So when we hear those happening on a somewhat regular basis, how can you keep it out of airlines? Yeah. You know, you're, you're, you nailed it, Scott. The, really, the big part here is that it's going to have to be secure by design. So, for example, the military today uses a system which is, uh, you know, called secure by design, which means when you build something up from the ground up, it has to be secure. It has to pass particular audits. As long as we keep to that, and I know everybody are assuming that that's the way it is right now. It's not. As long as we keep to those type of standards, understanding the safety security and the fact that somebody could use a plane as a weapon just like we saw in 9-11 once we get to that level of thinking we will be in a much better spot uh is this automation needed on planes daniel i mean will it save more lives than it may cost you know the interesting part is some of the studies that i read that actually shows that it can it, it's from a safety perspective uh, it is it is going to be better because it's going to limit human factor. But from what I think was read, right, about 26%, which is a pretty big number when it comes to aviation accidents. So I, it, with 26%, that's a big number. As long as they can keep to that, uh, I, I think we will be in a better spot because really the push for this is that. There's been a bit of a push due to savings, uh, but I feel the forefront is the actual security. Uh, how will pilots feel about this? Will they feel comfortable giving up this kind of control? Uh, you know, it, it's interesting. So uh, there's been a big uh, debate or initially when the autopilot program came into, into play uh, many years ago. And, of course, there's been lots of ad- advancement into them. Uh, I think pilots uh, will feel secure uh, as long as there's what I call a plan B to take back control of the plane. So... Um uh, we hear a lot that other countries, other governments are working on such things, uh, are, are working on advanced technology, spying, what have you. Who's working on this? Who's hacking into this? How extravagant, uh, how, how qualified a person do you need to, to do something like this? So I will say to, to penetrate this time of an aviation system in a, in a plane, you would need to be a fairly advanced, uh, advanced uh, uh, criminal to be able to do this. Uh, I would say that, you know, in terms of a profile, you definitely need to have some sort of a, a military background uh, to understand this better. Uh, unless, again, like we've seen some other situations in industrial controls, uh, the hackers got into the actual drawings and Cat5 and planning of the company versus trying to, to hack the actual machine uh, or the critical infrastructure that relies on that control machine. Uh, and that's how they got the blueprints to how the system works. And then it's a lot easier to take it down or manipulate it. Yeah. That being said, are planes safe today? Uh, planes are very safe today. Uh, again, uh, you know, I'm not an aviation spokesperson. But they're but safe. But you're, <laughs> but, but you're saying that they're safer now than what we're talking about because right now this technology isn't on board. Absolutely. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's very straightforward. The less connection touch points you have to a device, uh, the more secure it is. So, I mean, right now in terms of, you know, any type of situations, you have to physically 
uh, act on it, where in the future you might have to be able to do it virtually in a different part of the world. You know, now there's a movie coming, and probably there already has one. Who am I to know? Uh, you know, of a passenger sitting in a seat in, you know, row 18 that's controlling the airplane from their iPad. <laughs> you know, I, I'll tell you, unfortunately, we, we, you know, there, there is a way. So I'll give an example today, and this is not to scare people, but there is an easy way today to be able to penetrate, for example, the entertainment system on a plane. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, and again, why? Because it was developed for the convenience of the passengers. So when you think about it, when you go on any plane, there's Wi-Fi, there's so on. The moment there's Wi-Fi, there is an open connection. You're, for somebody who is able to manipulate this, they can do something. Of course, right now, the Wi-Fi system and entertainment system is completely separate from everything else. Who knows what's going to happen in the future? Have right? there been situations where hackers have tapped into the entertainment system? Uh, you know, we, we can say hackers, or we can say during testing. Oh, okay. Uh, you know, during during internal testing, that was a possibility that happened. So, uh, so obviously, if all of a sudden the movies get really good on your airplane, you know that a passenger's hacked in. <laughs> you know, it's funny in the old system that we saw here in our Canadian Airlines, uh, the old system before they started upgrading. That was uh, an extremely easy thing to do with uh, either a USB. Uh, or in a couple maneuvers because it was an older system and it was uh, fairly easy to, 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 to compromise. So the, the addition of this technology is strictly for safety of the airplane. In other words, to eliminate that even small percentage of human error. Correct. Correct. Um, yeah. Where does this leave the pilot? Will we need two pilots? Uh, I mean, they're always talking about uh, minimizing costs and, and cutting costs. I, I really hope they don't go that route. Uh, I always believe there needs to be uh, two people in the cockpit uh, for any event of emergency, kind of a plan A, plan B. Uh, so I hope that doesn't change. Uh, how safe, are, you know, we're doing all of this because, as you mentioned, any, most of the time when a plane crashes, a lot of the time they will attribute it to human error. If you uh, eliminate this through technology, obviously you're going to make planes safer. But that being said, uh, does it not introduce another layer of, of uh, risk uh, simply maybe not even because of hacking, but because it could break down, it, it could, there could be some sort of glitch in the system, not necessarily someone deliberately trying to hack it. What about just it, it just screwing up on its own? Yeah, it can definitely be malfunctions and so on. But uh, again, I, I, I feel, again, just from the things that I read uh, online, is uh, they're, they're always looking at, at, at situations where you have to take, somebody physically has to take control uh, of the device and we, we it, it started with uh, with cars and, and automobiles where you always have to have what I call a kill switch where somebody else can take over in terms of control uh, I do not see them going away from this considering that you know in a, in a, in a case of a car crash is uh, there's a certain danger and compromise there and then you take it to the to the airways where you cannot just land on water and there is a lot many more passengers that depend on you. So I believe that kill switch is going to be the key to the proper safety of the of those uh, of those devices. And as you plane. as you mentioned, Daniel, this is no different than autonomous vehicles. I mean, someone could hack into the same vehicle, uh, you know, a group of vehicles, and say drive it off the road. I mean, or accelerate. Um, wouldn't the same? Wouldn't we have the same issues with with automated vehicles? 
so the automated vehicles pose that problem. Again, when you have uh, an airplane, it's a little bit more difficult to connect to it. Right. Uh, it, it considering that it's, you know, it's just like you don't always have, again, not, not that you have to experiment any cell phone reception or anything of that nature when you're 25,000 feet up in the air. So it will have a different system. Uh, it will have uh, internet based on satellite, which is really what what is available today. It really comes down to what controls they're going to have of the airplane itself using that internet uh, technology. Uh, so are there fears that this is going to happen to vehicles? Uh, I, <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, there's already been studies of several uh, autonomous vehicles that have been breached because of their required connectivity to the internet. So every time you have a fancy and convenient feature, uh, and this is not to scare everybody, but like you can unlock your doors and turn it on and turn the music on and make the car drive, that all works on, on a frequency. Sometimes it's RF, sometimes it's the internet. Uh, we all have to understand that if it's an internet connection, somebody's potentially able to compromise that. And again, another movie, Daniel. Like, all of a sudden, it's <laughs> New York City and everybody's accelerator gets stuck wide open. I mean, you know, I mean, this is bizarre stuff. Yeah, this is, you know, I'm, you know it's funny, but when you look at scientific uh, science fiction movies from 20 years ago and we saw this type of technology, we, we're actually living it. We're just hoping that there's the protocols in place and the gap analysis to make sure that this type of things that, you know, we talked about for 20 years do not actually happen. Uh, and unfortunately, there's a rush to market, speed to market to sell your product. Hmm. Uh, sometimes we're using open source applications and, and uh, code to develop this without actually stopping and thinking about the security of it. So security is not built in from the ground up. That's the unfortunate part. We buy it off the shelf. Daniel Tobach has been with us, CEO, Cytelligence Incorporated, expert on cybersecurity. Daniel, thanks for the time and insight as always. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me on. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. You know, with so much action going on in regard to uh, the G7 and, you know, Trump beating up on, on Prime Minister Trudeau and then, of course, praising Kim Jong-un, we've forgotten about the Ontario election. Or have we? And are you right now very upset with me because you had just gotten over it and now you're up and now I'm bringing it up again? Uh, yeah. Transition as the PC government gets ready to take over uh, the lead of this country. What is happening behind the scenes as we lead up to uh, June 29th when Ford will officially take over? To talk more about all of this, Genevieve Tellier is with us, professor at School of Political Sciences, University of Ottawa, and is with us now. Genevieve, thanks so much for taking the time. We appreciate this. Well, thanks for the invitation. So uh, what is uh, going on right now in the Ontario legislature, are the paper shredders just smoking right now? <laughs> are the are the emails being deleted all over the land? What is happening now? Yes, probably. You're probably right. So uh, it's a transition. So uh, everything is shut down now. The legislation doesn't work, and so it's closed. And so, yes, everybody uh, leaves their office, those who don't uh, have any seat anymore there. And uh, the new team is coming. And uh, But I think that there's a lot of work do going on uh, within the PC now because they have to think about the next legislature and so what will be the program uh, already maybe thinking about the speech uh, from the throne and, and lay on, laying out the ideas of, uh, of the party uh, for the coming months years we'll, we'll see 
Uh, we certainly heard uh, what happened between the transition from uh, uh, from Dalton McGinty to Premier Wynn and how certain emails and stuff that shouldn't have been uh, was deleted and such. How do how does staff make sure that doesn't happen? How how do we make sure we don't end up in the same situation once the next government takes over? I'm not sure we know what to do because uh, there's not really re- a regulation about that. So we don't really have a law that says uh, what to do with emails, uh, Twitter accounts, and uh, all those new electronic device or, or form of communication. So we're kind of all dated. Uh, we know what to do with, with letters and files, uh, hard copies files. But, but everything that is electronic, it's kind of a new thing. And so maybe, yes, Parliament should, should look at that and say, well, this is the way we should archive all the information and 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 make the transition and normally yes it is current practice that what you have in your office you bring it with you or you shred it as you said and you don't leave it for your uh, successor i was talking with uh, mps here in ottawa recently and they were in fact complaining about that that when they came into office they have to start from scratch so everybody that that call to their uh, writings office. Uh, they have to restart all over the files and 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 and, and the follow up, and so that's kind of a waste of time. So uh, hopefully, maybe uh, we we have a legislature with a lot of new uh, rookies. Uh, so maybe they will bring in new ideas and and take action on that. But as it is now, there's no strict rules about what to to how to go about. So and are we to expect there be less cooperation because now the, it's a different party as opposed to last time where it was. Just just a different leader in the same party. So other, you know, uh, I I would certainly guess that the volume of stuff being uh, uh, deleted this time is probably greater than it was last time. Yes, it is. So, yes, uh, I expect also less collaboration. Uh, Also, what happened is that since so many uh, MPPs, liberal MPPs, have lost their seat, we're talking about 60%, uh, maybe uh, many of them are not that interested (laughs) to to continue working for it and finishing closing their files. So maybe they just put everything uh, aside and say, well, we'll we'll see what happens. Or so maybe few people, fewer people will work on this transition or or, or how to uh, finish the, as I said, the file. So, uh, but yes, overall less uh, communication, I would say, um, and also um, the ideas because since the platform of the PC is so different than the Liberal, mm-hmm. um, I don't see no, also how many links could be made from the former legislature to the one that's coming. Uh, yeah, that, that completely makes sense, let alone, uh, you know, why would anybody want to help the next person coming in, I mm-hmm. guess. Uh, that being said, we certainly have heard from the Auditor General, the, FICA- the Financial Accountability Officer. Uh, are we expect? and I guess Ford has already said he's going to have a complete audit before he gets in. Do you think things will be different this time, considering we have those warnings from the Financial Accountability Office and, and the Auditor General? About uh, looking at the finances, mm-hmm. uh, yes, yes. Uh, I'm I'm kind of puzzled because uh, the auditor general just said uh, before the election that the books seems to be in order. So uh, and the law has a provision that says that the auditor general must make an analysis just before the election. And so uh, that being said, it doesn't seem to be sufficient for Doug Ford. And so I'm sure he will come up with his own evaluation and probably ask a few of his own team to look at the books. Um, I don't but remember. I'm, I'm referring back to when the Auditor General was questioning some of the accounting practices. They weren't necessarily wrong. They just weren't 
I guess, accounting practices that had been used by political parties in the past. Yes, and this is mostly by uh, Idro One. So if you put Idro One aside, everything else seems okay. So, And she even said that in her report. So there's not a lot of uh, things to find. Uh, you, you may find some um, malver- malversation, meaning some on, on, on not good behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't see any uh, reason why we should think that we lost the trace of money within government. So, um, and if the, the the committee, if Doug Ford set up a committee and do find that those things did occur, then the Auditor General should think about her own report because you would have two reports contradicting themselves. Mm. So that would be also a problem. So we'll see how it goes. The major issue is about either one. So yes, uh, the accounting practices, there is a debate within the accounting uh, community. So how do you account for those uh, expenditures? Um, what do you do with Hydro One? Uh, what do you do with electricity? I think that's going to be one of the big files that the Ford administration is going to have to look into. And I'm not sure uh, they will find a, a good solution. It seems to me very complex. Hmm, absolutely. Um, obviously, the Liberals in the last election, down to six, uh, seven seats there, have lost official party status. During this transition period, would the Liberals say, hey, we'll help you with this, but we want official party status? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Does that, would, would that ever be put on the table? I think so. Yes, uh, they're, they're going to do everything that they can to have the, the status of official party. Um, and I, the response of, of Doug Ford will be indicative of the kind of legislature that we'll, we'll have. And so do we, will we see more confrontation? And so uh, everybody fends for himself. And so you have to live with your unofficial status. And, and that's all. So he could say that to the liberals. Or he could say, OK, I'll give you the status and I will expect a bit more collaboration within the parliament. And so if there are some piece of legislation, I want them to be pushed and have your collaboration. So it's really going to give the tone of, of the, as I said, the next legislature. I don't expect to see the official status uh, given to the liberals because for once, uh, many uh, surrounding Doug Ford come from the Harper government uh, team, I would say, and so uh, the tone was a bit more confrontational at the federal level during that time, so maybe we will see continuity. Is it, ab- is it about personality and confrontation? Because when I heard that this had been done in the past, it was because there was a, 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 a different um, a number of seats and it was uh, the the number was adjusted because the number of seats had changed within the house mm-hmm. uh, and it actually gone down whereas this time more seats have been added yes. so does that argument fly because some may say well then you got to have more than 8 Yes, that does fly. But at the same time, uh, our electoral system makes it uh, a bit odd that uh, with 40% of the vote, you've got a huge majority of the seat. So there's also this uh, idea of giving more power to smaller organization. <laughs> if we could say that the liberal is a smaller organization. Uh, but uh, you may you may think that, yes, it's important also to counterbalance and to give more voice, even though you have less seat, because uh, the electoral population popular vote doesn't transport identically in the number of seats that you have in the legislature. Has anybody ever done that before and granted someone official party status other than a a rejig of the seat count, which made it logical? 
Yes, I, at the federal level, I think, I don't recall which one, I'm going to have to verify, but I, I know it, had, it did occur at the federal level that we did give status. I think it was to the Bloc Québécois, but I'm going to have to look at, back at that. Hmm. Uh, but this did, yes, this had, had occurred. So, yes, uh, the government could do whatever he wants to do, and so that's a possibility. Where is the NDP on giving uh, Kathleen Wynne official status? They must be less inclined because uh, it's more of their opposition. So uh, we know that the NDP and Liberals are fighting about the same ideas. And so they, for, for uh, Andrea Orvat, what's important now is to uh, become the opposition, uh, official opposition and so to be voiced more and to act as uh, asking for account to the conservative. And so that's important for her to speak. So if she gives, if she, the Liberals have more time to talk in the legislature, uh, I'm not sure that they will like it uh, as much, I would say, as a conservative. So do you think, you don't think the NDP is going to do anything to promote giving uh, the Liberals official party status? I, I don't see why they would do that. Uh, then again, I may be wrong. But, but you commented <laughs> earlier that Doug Ford should to set the tone. So what's the difference? Well, he doesn't have anything to lose. He's, he has a majority, so he right. just present another uh, face he could he could show good faith and say well you see i'm i'm open to any suggestion and mm-hmm. at the end of the day it doesn't change anything about what about his program and what he wants to adopt uh, but that's the different take for the uh, ndp which uh, going to have to fight about uh, use the same time to voice the same concern so i don't think they want skilled liberals uh, kathleen Wynne is still there and she's quite skillful at that and so maybe uh, they don't want to see uh, them uh, taking more place than than they have. So do you think this is a done deal at this point, Genevieve? Do you think that, that it's it's official, they won't be official party status, or do you think this still could change? Well, we have been heard, hearing that maybe there could be an alliance between the Green Party and the Liberals. So that would be interesting to see. So if the, I don't know how they would do that, but if they could come up and, and, and build a, a party, so would it mean that Mr. Schreiner would join the Liberals? I doubt, but would they create a new party for a specific number of years and then they would be up to eight so that would be interesting so the, everybody that loves politics and strategy we could look at that um, but even if it doesn't work with the green party uh, I don't say I don't say it's a done deal as I said I'm waiting to see how Doug Ford will will take that uh, it could be go both sides uh, I'm expect a bit more that this won't happen but if it does that would be, for me, a pleasant surprise because it would give more variety within the legislature, which, which I think is good. So what's happening at the legislature right now? Uh, everybody's scrambling for office space and, and, and so on and so <laughs> forth. Like, it, What's going on there? Well, everybody's trying to understand what's the job because we have, uh, I don't know how many new rookies, uh, come, I think it's 73 rookies MPs that are entering uh, the legislature. That's a lot. Mm. Uh, you have to set up your office. You have a budget. How many person do you hire? Uh, how do you spend your time? What are your priorities? I think then the office location will Will, be, will become a preoccupation. Uh, many are thinking, uh, will I enter cabinet? That's also going on. So I would guess that among seniors and PPs, they are thinking or trying to lobby about that. Uh, so just getting your way around and, and seeing what the change means. So everybody's speaking to each other and, and going around and 
try to learn the, the new location. Um, as the legislature goes uh, for for it, uh, everything is is closed, so uh, it it won't have it won't be open until Doug Ford says uh, there will be a new legislature, legislature with a speech of the from the throne. Um, but for the moment, uh, no piece of legislation, no uh, period of question, nothing. Everything is shut down. What is the biggest challenge for the Conservative Party at this point as they as they head towards June 29th? Probably thinking, oh yeah, yes, uh, who will be in cabinet? So mm-hmm. you have 76 uh, MPPs. Probably one third will get a ministerial position, so you have two thirds that will be kind of unpleased with that. So how do you make everybody comfortable and happy within this party uh, so there will be some disappointment um, giving new responsibility so if you're not a minister you may be a president of a legislative committee that could be a good thing also so setting up uh, all those in motion uh, but try to put everybody together which is kind of easy since they want and they have a good majority so that's okay but um, managing expectation I would say that's the biggest challenge for the moment uh, as far as as the PCs not being in power for 15 years, how does that change things, or does it? Because obviously their personnel has probably turned over. Yes. Um, so at the same time, as you said, they may lack a bit of some resources. Uh, but as I said before, there's a lot of person coming from the federal uh, PC that are helping now Doug Ford. So that that's a good thing for him. Um, but at the same time, because you have not been in power for 15 years, you're anxious to put everything on the table. So it's kind of managing what are your priority, uh, how you will present them during the next four years. So don't forget you have four years to govern and it doesn't have to come within the first here. Hmm. Um, so think about all those those things. So uh, uh, excitement, I would say, at the same time, uh, precipitation even, but at the same time, taking time to good, to make things uh, happen uh, well. A bit as, as we have seen with Justin Trudeau at the federal level, it took like about two years before mm-hmm. we start really a uh, real piece of legislature entering parliament. Uh, what about Andrew Horbath and the NDP? Because now all of, all of a sudden they've got the responsibility of official opposition. How does it change life for that party? It's changed a lot of life, uh, a lot of things for them. Uh, first of all, for them also, there's the concern of having a good staff, a support staff to help them uh, tackle any piece of legislation or initiative the government may present. Um, also, uh, they have to think about what to expect so it's a lot about anticipation they don't control the agenda the political agenda the pc does it so they have to be able to respond as quickly as possible to whatever initiative uh, the pc will present and so be prepared anticipate uh, continue also to ask for the pc to support your your group so uh, kind of some disappointment for many um, they will also under all that will also uh, create her shadow committee so who will be uh, responding to each minister, uh, whether in parliament or outside parliament, so also giving some responsibility. So I think also a lot of work for the uh, for the NDP. Uh, the Liberals, Kathleen Wynne announcing uh, when during her concession speech that she was stepping down. When do they start uh, uh, with a new leadership selection? And is, is it important that they do that early on in all of this just to get some sort of, some sort of direction? Yes, that's a good point. Uh, is it important? Uh, it could be also important to wait to be, make sure to understand what happened and to make sure that good candidate will uh, come forward and 
and, and uh, be candidates because uh, as it is now, uh, many people, person lost their seat or may not be interested to, to be a leader of the, of the Liberal Party. It may change in a few months. Uh, but at the same time, we are starting right away to hear some names that are kind of interested to be within the leadership front. So uh, it's kind of balancing both. Uh, what's important is maybe to prepare, to start preparing, uh, I would say rapidly. doesn't mean to have a leadership uh, contest right away, uh, but to show that this is a concern and things are setting up and not waiting at the last minute with the uh, next election. And uh, the, the thing is that it may take a lot of years, so even not for the next election, but longer than that for the Liberals to rebuild because uh, many people will, will will leave the party and they don't have no longer a job. Uh, the financing also of the party, who will be the donator, they won't be as numerous as they were. So uh, many issue for them also. A lot of soul searching for this party now? I think so. Yes. Yes, a lot. Yes, uh, how come they end up with uh, losing, as it may be, the official status, while the NDP is now the opposition, uh, while both have similar platforms? So, yes, for them, it's kind of a puzzle to, to look at. Genevieve Tellier has been with us, professor, School of Political Studies, University of Ottawa. Genevieve, as always, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you very much. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.